And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, your host. Thank you for joining me today. Hope your day's going well here in the Twin Cities. Uh, we're looking at a lot of the white stuff. We're getting three to seven inches, but uh, nothing to worry about it. It'll all be gone in nine months. So here we go. I think it's going to start uh, again um, winter that that season. But we we claim we love it here in the upper uh, Midwest. So I don't know who those people are. <laughs> <laughs> we love it because it won't leave. That's so true, Rebecca. <laughs> so you have to love it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's going to be a great hour. Uh, the Reverend Ben Johnson is going to be joining me, and he, uh, when he is not managing editor of the Acton Institute, he is a reporter for the Daily Planet, where he wears thicker framed glasses, and he's never seen in the same room as Superman. That's uh, that's that's who's coming up next. Look at him; he's already laughing. I didn't mean to make you laugh, Ben. But welcome. My secret identity is now blown. I must I, come up with a new form of cover. <laughs> I just blew your identity. I'm sorry about that. But nice to have you back on the program. Always good to be with you, Bill. Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, what have you been thinking about lately? Because uh, I overheard you talking to Rebecca, but I couldn't hear it. Well, you know, uh, of course, the, the topic that's on everybody's mind right now is that vacant Supreme Court seat uh, that was left by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, we have Amy Coney Barrett, who's been named uh, by President Trump, this distinguished uh, professor of law, and uh, for two years she's been on uh, the, fifth, the uh, appeals court out of Indiana. Uh, she is she lives in Indiana, commutes uh, 90 miles each way to Chicago so she can be with her family, uh, her very large family. She's a faithful Christian. I think she's going to be a fantastic uh, choice for this, and the confirmation vote is set for Monday, so we'll get to see, provided there are no... Uh, sort of dirty tricks that come up uh, as they were with the last one. We should have nine justices on the Supreme Court uh, very shortly, just uh, shortly after they've begun their session on the uh, first Monday in October. Mm-hmm. And what are your, what else, what are the thoughts do you have on Amy Coney Barrett? Oh, she's, she's outstanding. You know, she's an originalist. And uh, so she's, she very much is in the mode of Antonin Scalia. Mm-hmm. I read one of her dissents on, um, on the second amendment and it was phenomenal because she tries very much to understand that words have meaning, history has meaning. And so she went back into what the founding fathers meant by the Second Amendment, traced it all the way through the history of the legislature. Uh, she's a very sharp cookie who knows knows her things. She knows the law. She knows history. Uh, that really has been outstanding. And there has been – she's so sparkling clean in terms of her, her public persona and her image – uh, that there's nothing there. The closest thing that they could come up with was the fact that she belongs to a prayer group. And right. in Washington, that's that's considered scandalous. Yeah, no kidding. So, Ben, what are your what are your concerns about the traditionally Christian views being attacked in the hearings like marriage and and faith and all that? Yeah, well, and of course, this isn't the first time she's personally been targeted that way. When, right. when she was confirmed in 2017 for the, the district court that she's in now on the appeals court, uh, she has, uh, you know, she was told by one of the U.S. senators, the dogma lives loudly in you, this sort of Star Wars-like phraseology. That's so weird, uh, isn't it? It was very strange. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, she and another judge as well were, were both targeted because, uh, in his case, he belonged to the Knights of Columbus, which is, of course, a Catholic organization. And several people, including uh, the vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris, said, did you know that this was an organization that opposed gay marriage? And he said, when I when I joined, there was no such thing as gay marriage. <laughs> I had nothing to do with formulating its policy on gay marriage or its policy on any of these other things. It's simply saying that it's a faithful part 
of the Catholic Church in that case, but in, in any Christian church, uh, which is traditional in its view of the Bible and in morality, that's the, the point of view that is, is taught and embraced, and therefore embraced by organizations that are part of that denomination, or non-denominational groups, the case may be. If you're a Bible believer, you have a certain, a certain perspective on abortion, on marriage, that uh, has been passed down traditionally, and that you uphold. So uh, those who would say that anyone who believes in those things have no ability to serve is really coming at it with a point of view of religious prescription, saying that anyone who is a part of a traditional religious group, you know, the vast majority of Americans through history, could not serve in the courts, which were informed by that very Judeo-Christian point of view in the first place. And Ben, don't they, aren't they attacking the, the Catholic Church, saying that what it teaches is that wives should submit to the husband's authority, um, and that's just sexist? Yeah, this group that she was part of, uh, People of Praise, which is, it's formally Catholic or largely Catholic, but it has a lot of uh, members of other groups. It's non-denominational, so it's not strictly Catholic. Uh, but it's it's basically a charismatic group for people who are Catholic and other charismatics to get together and pray. And of course, some of, some of the listeners to this uh, program very well may be charismatic or belong to such a group. And it's simply trying to stigmatize the idea that someone would be so crazy as to believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and functioning on planet <laughs> Earth today. That's, mm-hmm. that's basically the, the thrust of, of what's being done here, and to stigmatize anyone who would hold certain social views, uh, which flow naturally from the Scriptures and have been historically upheld by all civilizations through all time. Ben, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. We were respectful of our religious beliefs, even if we disagreed, but those days are over. They're long gone, unfortunately, and you, know, you see this sort of this sort of friction. And you know, the last time I think the Democrats were a little bit too outspoken in the way that they were attacking uh, her faith. So this time they've tried to come through a back door. They didn't want to say, "Well, the dogma lives loudly in you. You're you're a Catholic shill and a handmaiden. Uh, you're going to usher in the handmaid's tale throughout the entire country." You know, here's here's a woman who's bringing home the bacon, who is literally judging men, and they think that she's going to uh, usher in an era of female subservience. It doesn't really track, but that's that's the attack that's been used. So instead, they've they've made this sort of strange comment that uh, she's going to ban contraception. Now we haven't heard about this in eight years. You remember the war on women was originally supposed to be Mitt Romney was going to ban contraception. Um, that was that was the. Um, the understanding because Obama wanted to force Catholic nuns and uh, evangelical owners of Hobby Lobby and people of all faith to uh, either underwrite contraceptives or potentially abortifacient um, materials uh, and uh, to do so uh, so so-called at no cost through their insurance companies. So there was this weird exchange between Democratic Senator uh, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut and Amy Coney Barrett where who's asking her about Griswold v. Connecticut. And that's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, that's where you got the idea of the right to privacy, which ended up being the, the formation of Roe v. Wade. So Griswold stands just one rung below Roe. And so if they can protect that, they think they can protect Roe. And uh, also it, it um, talks about the right to use contraception, which of course is kind of hard to find if you actually just read the Constitution as it's written. But uh, they said that it was from a penumbra of an emanation of the text. so You use so, some big um, words that I don't get, so you just yeah, talked over yeah, my head. Bit, Way uh, to go. The, well, uh, 
they're, they're nonsensical words, okay. uh, if you're getting right down to it. Mm -hmm. the, the Supreme Court said that you know, the Supreme Court sends out a shadow, and, and outside of that shadow is another shadow, and in the shadow of that shadow, you get the right to, to use contraception and abort your child. That's, that's the sort of judicial activism that was at play in 1965. So uh, Blumenthal spoke to uh, Amy Coney Barrett and said, I want you to keep in mind how many people are watching and listening because right now they could take a message from what you say. They may see what you say and be deterred from using contraceptives. And I think, A, that's, that's probably not historically accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think a lot of people are watching saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't because Amy Coney Barrett... Um, second, second of all, of course, we have the lowest birth rate in, in American history right now. So it wouldn't be a bad idea for them to take that idea, perhaps in some <laughs> cases. But, uh, but on top of that, that's not the way economics works. If you know something is going to be banned, then the first thing you do is get as much of it as you can get into your hands immediately. That's, that's the way Americans and all people everywhere work. If something that you like and care about uh, is going to disappear from the store shelves, you go out and get it. That's why toilet paper flew off the shelves during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. That's why we had all of the hoarding that we had, because people thought I won't be able to go back out and get more in a month or two. I better get all I can now. So you get that exact same idea at work here. So, you know, even on even their misguided attempts at painting her as some kind of Catholic fanatic are equally misguided because of their ignorance, not only of Catholic theology and Christian theology, but also because of their ignorance of economics. It all ties together in one huge ball of ignorance that was the confirmation <laughs> hearings of Amy Coney Barrett. <laughs> ben, you're kind of a history buff. How do you think the founders would react to these current controversies that we're going through right now? I think if the founders were to rise from their graves... First of all, if you told them our national debt, they'd all die and we'd have to bury them. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> That's but so then, true. You know, the, if, if they were to hear the, con the the people who were speaking today and our politicians and so-called leaders, I think the only ones whose, whose speech they would even understand would be someone like Amy Coney Barrett. She's the one who's speaking about the glory of the Constitution, about uh, original intent, about the founding structures that our founding fathers uh, placed within our documents. And she's she's the one who I think tracks most with the thoughts of the founding fathers, the idea of federalism, unalienable rights, uh, inherent dignity, separation of powers. All of those things are things that they say and understand. And the idea that the federal government would be involved in regulating birth control or, or talking about birth control would, would be uh, so far they would flip their powdered wigs. Yeah. So, Ben, do you understand the reversal of Roe v. Wade that it would go from that would just go to the states and the states would decide? Is that that's what exactly a, what would happen. So that's what yes, a reversal right. would be. So taxpayers would say, I'm, we're no longer part of this uh, paying for abortions. Now it's decided uh, by the individual states. And multiple states already have legislation on the books. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, uh, they would actually liberalize their abortion laws okay. or maintain the status quo. So uh, New York, California, and several others have said, I think a total of seven or eight, possibly nine at this point, uh, have said – if Roe v. Wade is overturned, we recognize as within the state uh, that we are in that abortion will be legal up until X date, usually all the way until birth, often taxpayer funded at state expense. So, so in those states, you'll have one standard. But what you'll end up with is a patchwork quilt where the, uh, the underlying will of the citizenry will actually hold. People in Alabama might have one set of laws. Tennessee will have another. 
And then uh, people in Washington and, and uh, New York and California will have a much different set of laws because that's what the people in those states actually wanted. Mm -hmm. What Roe did was sort of put an accelerator on it, nationalize it, and make it so un, as though it were an unalienable right that is untouchable by the will of the people for the last 40-plus years. Yeah. That's something that should not happen in American jurisprudence. So true. Reverend Ben Johnson is my guest, managing editor of the Acton Institute. You can head to acton.org, A-C-T-O-N.org. We'll be right back. Reverend Ben Johnson is my guest from the Acton Institute. And not to put pressure on you, Ben, but Rebecca reminded me that she usually gets her word of the day from Ben Johnson. You usually throw out some word that she doesn't know or hasn't heard in a while. Well, it, it's, a per, it's a perfectly cromulent word. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Yay, I'm so happy. Perfect. You made her very happy. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Ben, as we, as we are starting to get so close to this uh, election, which is very con contentious, maybe you could offer some help for the Christians in this very divided time. Well, I'll do my very best. Okay. You know, I think what we, we saw one very uh, helpful sign just uh, today, which was that uh, the two people who were running for governor of Utah— sort of brought the whole country back together. Uh, you know, of course, both of these people are members of the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, so they are, or, or what we would conventionally call Mormons, so they, they sort of had the, the Mormon nice touch to it. Uh, they, were, they were speaking against one another, and they said, you know, I'm the Republican, I'm the Democrat. They gave their names. They said, I hope you'll vote for me, but we want you to know that even though we're running against one another and we hope that we will ultimately prevail against the other person, we can do that without demonizing the other person, or calling them bad names, or, or refusing to cede to the other person. And that's really the sort of spirit that we need, is a spirit of comedy. Uh, really, tensions are so high at this point that uh, some people have, have uh, spoken as though they're explosive or uh, we're at a pre-violent level. And what we need to do is defuse that uh, tremendously. I think that there are a couple of steps that Christians can take when we speak to one another uh, to do that. First of all, before we speak, be sure to listen. Uh, and that's that's the key. You know, Mortimer J. Adler was the great uh, University of Chicago philosophy professor uh, and uh, uh, wrote uh, How to Read a Book, among other things. He said the foundation of any argument is learning to listen to other people. So before you can speak, listen. And he said whenever the other person is finished, always start back by saying, do I understand you to say? And then repeat their argument correctly, mm -hmm. not in a in a caricature but make sure that you actually get their argument right. If you're wrong, ask them for correction. Uh, and then proceed with humility, uh, you know, because we believe that uh, they're wrong. We but uh, equally, it could be that we are the ones who are wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the worst feelings in the world is to get in the middle of an argument and realize that you were wrong halfway through it. Uh, I don't know if it's ever happened to you, Bill, but it sure happened to me a time or two. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, generally with my mom uh, when I was younger. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's it's absolutely true. It's the worst feeling. So you know you could you could be the one at fault. So proceed with humility. Uh, don't view the other person as an enemy, uh, unless you're on a debate stage or a radio where you're trying to influence a, a very vast, impressionable audience, such as the prodigious audience that listens to this program week in week out. 
Yeah, but uh, but anybody anywhere else, you you want to treat people uh, as though the relationship is more important than winning the argument. Uh, so so uh, you want to proceed with respect, establish common ground, say that you respect them and that you want the same things, and then you know lay out your argument and always when you speak to somebody else, bring your argument back to their values. Try and hear what you're saying through their ears. Um, you know the um, there's an ancient uh, principle. Uh, that came out of the Middle Ages, that uh, all communication is received according to the mode of the receiver. And uh, so you know, what that's saying is, you can say anything you like, but we've all had the experience of having our words, you know, we will say something that makes perfect sense to us, but the other person got something completely different out of that, particularly, say, those of us who have been uh, on the front lines of the abortion issue. Uh, often what we say is not how we're heard. So we have to interpret what we're being, what uh, what we're saying through the lens of the person who is hearing us, uh, and then finally, always, you know, whenever things get too hot, come back to their values and and show how this tracks with their values. So, uh, you know, if you say, for example, uh, I am against abortion, not because I want women not to have control of their lives, or that uh, I think the women shouldn't be able to control their bodies, but there's another separate, distinct human being who needs to be brought into the conversation who is valuable. And the abortion hurts women. It uh, ultimately leads them with great scars. And I think we've all spoken to women who have been through that experience. All of them tell us, if you could speak to another woman, make sure she doesn't go through this so she doesn't experience it. Uh, so, you know, bring bring out the, the, uh, the sort of common ground that will unite you. And then finally, don't expect a conversion all in one discussion. You know, uh, oftentimes we plant seeds and... Uh, the Holy Spirit blows where it wills, and uh, whether that seed takes root or not is in part in the hands of God, in part in the hands of us, and how well we use the talents he gave us. But um, you know, in our intellectual lives, often one fragment of what is said will be remembered, and then years later something else will activate the rest of the conversation and will begin to have a transformation. It worked that way with me in the gospel uh, I know that it's worked with many people when it comes to the most important issue, our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's no different with other issues. So, you know, don't press for people to walk the aisle of, of the Republican or Democratic Party in one sitting. Uh, you know, sit down, talk with them, love them, show them that you respect them, and then agree to uh, air your views in a way where you're both making a common pursuit of the truth, uh, both uh, respecting one another. They may not reciprocate, but that's the only way that we're going to be able to discuss these issues as we go forward, up until the election, but then after the election, there's going to be a lot of acrimony as well. So that's a way to diffuse that whole situation. Mm-hmm. And then it's staying calm, not feeling triggered. I know you've had this happen before, Ben, where someone who doesn't even really know you starts a conversation and will start railing against us, a person, and you just feel like right out of the out of the gate, you're feeling like, ooh, this is going to be really a challenge. Uh, all the time. It, you know, it, it happens in the strangest places sometimes. I was in Budapest, and this American couple found us, and you know, the first thing they did was start railing against our own government. Uh, this was shortly after the, the previous presidential election, and uh, you know, we were at a statue of Ronald Reagan. They started saying negative things. There's a statue of Ronald Reagan in Budapest, by the way, because of the fall of communism. Oh, sure. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he's honored around the world. But uh, you know, then they were railing against Reagan and, and things that he had done 40 years ago. And uh, you know, all of us were, who were in the group, myself and a Hungarian national who loved Reagan more than I did, uh, were, yeah, he, was, he was about ready to jump in. And, and uh, I just said, oh, where are you from? 
and, <laughs> and uh, we don't necessarily have to go to every every uh, fight that we're invited to. So sometimes it's worth just getting to know the person and choosing the person in the relationship overhand. There was a, a wonderful elderly gentleman at a church that I attended for many years. He was the uncle of uh, of the pastor, and he was fascinating. He was a law professor. He'd been in the CIA during the Cold War. I, I think I'm allowed to say that now without being hit. Uh, he was also a law professor in Swaziland, and uh, he had traveled the world. He was brilliant. Like most law professors, he was left of center, but he wasn't where the, the BLM, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders, young socialist uh, sort of component is today. Um, he was, he was uh, an Adlai Stevenson liberal. But um, I let him talk, and I would, I would discuss things in history with him. And um, until about a month before he died, he thought I was a liberal Democrat because I never contradicted him. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I just let him speak and, and I, I listened graciously. And, uh, you know, he, he never said anything that uh, really was uh, of a level that I felt that I needed to contradict him because nothing he said contradicted the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's such it's such wisdom. Uh, and I so appreciate that. Rebecca, did you raise your hand like you had a question for Ben? Oh, I always have a question for Ben. Oh, that's well, okay. I, were you trying to get my attention? Just, you but got... It's usually due to my lack of clarity. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not it at all, Ben. No, I just like to hear you talk because you always challenge us. I, I think there's so much that we seem to be, um, that seems to be unstable, that maybe once once was a given in American society. And I think as we look at those challenging things, I wonder, Ben, if you wouldn't just reaffirm the foundation that's there for Christians, for people of Jesus Christ, that we can still have that security if we're keeping our eyes heavenward. I, I just heard from a listener, uh, I think it was yesterday, that said, I have such a difficult relationship with the news. And I wonder if you'd take just the last maybe minute or so to help reaffirm that we still have hope no matter what happens this election season. The news is tremendously triggering because uh, it's like a wave and you're tossed forth uh, like every wave of doctrine, as the Apostle Paul said. Those of us who are in Christ are supposed to be rooted so that we are not tossed about with every wind, so that if uh, the world is going our way or not going our way, we have that firm foundation that we're built on the rock of our Lord God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we are not simply part of this world. We're part of a larger group. We're part of the heavenly kingdom, the new Jerusalem. Uh, In this world, we have no continuing city. And so we pray for the foundation, the welfare of this city. And we always uh, do our best as citizens to make sure that its prosperity is, is secured and our freedoms are respected. But ultimately, our identity is as fellow citizens and co-heirs with our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ. And whatever happens in this world outside of our control, if we walk faithfully in this world, we will reign and rule with him in the next through the power and the blood of Jesus Christ shed for all human beings. Ben, thanks for showing up with your A-game. It's the only game you have. Well, thanks so much for bringing me on uh, to Arnold's in the afternoon. Uh, of course. You have uh, all the A's uh, in your name right there. And, <laughs> and then, and then uh, just the greatest comedy that uh, I can I, hear on Christian radio. So I well. love it. Thanks. Ben Johnson's been my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. I love my job because I get to come in and put on a pair of headphones and, and sit in front of a microphone and get I get to talk to Dr. Alistair McGrath. Now, the only other way I would be able to talk to him, apart from having this job, is if I got seated next to him on an airplane. And then after probably 10 minutes, he'd ask to be relocated. So this is one of the real perks of having this job. 
as I get a chance to uh, speak to such brilliant minds. He's written a new book called Born to Wonder, Exploring Our Deepest Questions, Why We Are Here, and Why Does It Matter? And I'm three pages into the book, and I already can't put it down. And I kept reading and reading, and it is fantastic. He is here on the studio line as my guest all the way from across the pond. Alistair McGrath, welcome. It's great to be with you, Bill. Thank you. All right, let's get things started. Uh, and I love your In Memory of My Mother. Would you tell me about your mother? Yes, my mother was a very significant figure. She, um, she was born in the south of Ireland. Uh, she got caught up in the Irish Civil War, a very, very difficult time. Uh, managed to make her way to Northern Ireland, uh, married there. I was her first child. And actually, she was a figure of strength to me throughout mm. my life. Um, she died quite recently at the grand old age of 91. So uh, she's a very significant family figure. That's just lovely. I lost my mom recently, too, in the last couple of years, and she was 88 and they're they're one of a kind, aren't they? They are. You you miss them, and and oh, you, when they're terrible. gone, realize just how important they were. Yeah. Yeah, and the whole idea that you can't really pick up the phone and chat, and you can't make a in face visit person, you just uh, you realize how much you miss them. Exactly. Yeah. So um, the book uh, "Born to Wonder: Exploring Our Deepest Questions." I mean, it's a it's a a lovely start as I've got it uh, as I started reading. And part one is wondering about ourselves. We are we are born to wonder, I and mean, we're asking questions, and we're hoping for answers. That's kind of how we're wired, isn't it? That's right. I think there's something about it that makes us ask these really deep questions. Now, of course, if you're a Christian, you, you'll say, well, that, that's all about being made in God's image. We have a sort of homing instinct for God, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not. And that's, that's a very important point for Christians who want to talk to their friends about their faith. But you're right. There's something in us which, in effect, almost makes us want to ask these questions. Why are we here? What, what's life all about? And there's that natural inquisitiveness. I think it's very important that we're able to tap into that and show how Christianity meets these really deep questions and really deep needs of human beings. Yeah. Um, Alistair, you say in uh, your book that human beings are strange creatures. I don't disagree. We want to matter, to feel that we're loved, to be fulfilled, to be special. That must be something God puts in all of us because that is true across the board. I think it is, and, and we can take this in directions. One is to say, um, I will make myself loved. I'll go and achieve things. I'll become a celebrity. And in effect, you're looking for your gratification, your your value, sense of self-worth outside you. Or, of course, you can say, once I realize that God loves me, once I realize that I matter so much to God that Christ died for me, actually, everything seems different. You realize you don't need to struggle. You don't need to strive. You don't need to seek after acceptance. That's already dealt with. And what we can do is beginning to live out a good, meaningful life, knowing that God has, loves us, accepts us, and wants to do some very special things for him. You know, Alistair, when you start asking these deep questions, and it's it's hard to do sometimes to take these reflective questions and, and start doing soul searching. When you ask questions like, what do we mean? You know, it's sometimes you read stories of celebrities that, you know, had this incredible amount of money and fame, and yet they're completely miserable. They can't figure out why it didn't uh, produce happiness for them like they thought it would. Well, that's right. I remember hearing a story once. It was a, a famous author who I won't name, but he, he was asked, what do you know now at the end of your life that you wish someone had told you at 16? And here was his answer. I wish someone had told me that when you get to the top, it's not worth it. Mm. <laughs> and wow. actually, I thought that was a really interesting point because actually he, he was 
seeking for something. He was trying to achieve something which did not satisfy. And that's why I, I think Christ's parable of the pearl of great price is so important. This is all about um, a, a pearl that really does satisfy. It meets our deepest needs. It's valuable. And God gives it to us because he loves us so much. So for me, that's a really important point. Mm-hmm. You know, it, with what's going on right now in the in the world with the coronavirus and, you know, we're, we're, we'd normally try to make sense of our world and our lives. Now so, it's even more challenging. I, I wonder if you could talk to that. I think it's very challenging. I think one of the things that this virus crisis has done is to show us that we aren't as in control of things as we thought we were. You know, we have this idea, we, we, we can do what we like, we can make the world where we like it, and now we realize, actually, that's not right. That actually, here is something that is, in effect, forcing us to rethink, making us realize our own vulnerability, and the fact that, actually, we can't do all that much about it. And I think it's helped us to realize that, actually, we are rather weak, and we are a bit helpless, and we need someone to help help us along. So I find a lot of people have begun to uh, not um, become religious in the sense of actively embracing Christianity, but begun to ask religious questions because the situation has shown up the inadequacy of so many secular accounts of human nature and of this very false idea of hope that you find in the secular world. People are saying there must be a better answer, and I want to encourage them to think like that because I think that is pointing them along a road that will lead them to faith if they keep going. Mm-hmm. I want to get back, uh, if I can, Alistair, to this idea of our need for meaning and the fact that we're all kind of looking for meaning. Do you remember a time in your life where you were searching for meaning and all of a sudden you, you hit your, your pivot point and you go, ah, I know what my, my meaning and my purpose is now? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think when I was younger, I used to be quite an aggressive atheist. And I, oh, I would wow. say, well, look, I make my own, I make my own meaning. I, I decide <laughs> who I am. I decide what's right, what's good, what's true, and so on. And then I began to realize, actually, it was almost like Sigmund Freud's idea of a wish fulfillment. I just invented the world I wanted. Mm. And I began to realize, what if there is a real world beyond me, an objective world? Not what I've invented, but one that's there. Have I got the guts, the courage to actually embrace that world rather than simply invent one that I like? And I think actually it was a very unsettling thought because it made me realize that maybe there was another way of thinking about things which might be less comfortable, might not be quite so um, self-satisfying, but might actually say, this is the way things really are. Why not step into that worldview instead of one you invented? And actually, I found that thought very uncomfortable. It didn't bring me to faith, but it did make me realize that perhaps I was simply, in effect, cocooning myself in a sort of self-protective worldview. Mm -hmm. And then how did you share to your other atheist friends that you were moving away from that uh, perspective? Well, I tried to explain for that. I wasn't... I, I, in effect, said, look, I'm not sure this is right anymore. I tried to explain <laughs> why I was having doubts. Yeah. And, of course, the idea of an atheist having doubts, I mean, that's, that sounds you know, <laughs> almost like contradictory. But right. actually, it's not. It's not. You, <laughs> they have a real problem. And, and my atheist friends were, were, were puzzled by this and didn't want to talk about it. But actually, happily, I found other people who were more than happy to talk about this and helped me to see there was indeed a better way of thinking about this. And then, um, by accident, I discovered C.S. Lewis. And... Um, that really moved me on. I think we all need um, traveling companions along the 
road of life. And C.S. Lewis helped me to see things in a new way. So he really played a very important role in not so much bringing me to faith, but actually once I sort of stepped into the world of faith, helping me realize how exciting it was and how much sense it made. Yeah, Lewis had quite an ability to produce a, kind of a framework for us to interpret and understand things. I mean, I found I find him to be just uh, an endless source of of uh, wisdom. He is, and and he writes very well, far better than I can. And uh, and you know, you, what I find Lewis is, you know, you read him, and then you come back to the same work a few weeks later, and you see things that you missed the first time round. He's all one of these writers you can keep going back to. He, he writes so well, he leads you in, he helps you to see things you've missed, and I, I really appreciate him. I, I do too. So when we're Searching for meaning, um, is it, do you think there's, it's a discovery process and do you think uh, people spend their whole life and do they, do they change what they think their meaning is in life uh, multiple times over their life? I'm sure people do change their minds. I'm sure that people you know, begin thinking this is what it's all about then end up thinking something very different. But I think the really important thing is to say that we're all looking for something that really does satisfy. It actually helps us to see we're not meaningless. We're not valueless. Actually, we do matter and there is some, some rationale, some reason for life. I think that, that's very important. Then the question is, which is the best meaning? And that's a really important question. And I think that one of the things that Christianity does so well is not simply to talk about you know ideas but to point to a person Jesus Christ and say look that is what a meaningful life looks like we've got an example not simply ideas but a real example that we can in effect follow not simply understand and to me that's very important mm-hmm. in your book you talk uh, about a number of atheists like Dawkins and, and Nietzsche and a couple of others that when the when meaning in life fails um, and you're left with just your own disbelief, it's it's you're having a hard time understanding that there's anything deep in life. Well, I think that's right. I think a lot of people um, do find this question of meaning very very difficult because it's uh, they, they they're searching for something and they find feel they haven't found it yet. Actually, right. it's, it's like water slipping through your fingers. I think one thing we have to be able to do is to help people to see, um, you know, what this is all about. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to talk to people, to in effect say, let me tell you how this works out in my life. This is how I find me. Here's how it expresses itself. Here's how it helps me think about suffering and, and difficult times in life. In other words, help them to see the difference that it makes, because meaning can very often seem a very abstract idea. I think it's really important to um, be able to say to people, let me tell you how this works out in life for me. Does that help you understand what this is all about? So I think that can be very helpful to people. Mm-hmm. I love, Alistair, that you talk about uh, the idea of wondering, because it seems like you know when we're uh, young, we're so full of wonder. And as you get older, the wonder starts to diminish. Like you you know, take a four-year-old to the zoo and they go, wow, look at that, a giraffe. And then you take the 20-year-old to the zoo and they go, yeah, giraffe, what's the point? And yeah, when, and, when and that, that's a real issue. Yeah, so when we start to lose our sense of... The real issue there, I think... Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I think one of the problems is that we very often lose our sense of wonder. I think the question is, how do, how do we get it back again? 
And that's why I think for Christians, worship is so important, because worship is, if you like, trying to recapture that sense of wonder by, in effect, reminding ourselves how wonderful God is, how wonderful the Christian gospel is. We express it in, in singing, in adoration, in prayer. And actually, that helps us, think, to rediscover something of the wonder of faith. I think it's very important that we do things like that, because otherwise, as you say, you know, we, it, it goes stale. We, we lose um, we lose a sense of just how wonderful it is. And, and worship, I think, does help us to recapture just how wonderful this is. Mm-hmm. Alistair, are you still good at enjoying the natural sciences? And you go out and just see a beautiful sunset, and do you still just have this sense of awe and wonder at that? I do. Um, it's an immediate experience. You, you just can't yeah. help it happening. You just say, my goodness. Uh, and then, of course, you, you're asking, well, is that just a sort of nice experience or is it pointing to something? I think that's what, what Christianity is so good at saying. It says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. That's from Psalm 19. And it's just saying to us, look, God's creation helps us to appreciate God, the creator. In other words, we look at this beautiful world and actually it just helps us recapture something of the wonder of God. Mm-hmm. Dr. Alistair McGrath is my guest. He's written this amazing book called Born to Wonder, exploring our deepest questions, why we are here and why does it matter? We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back with lots more with Alistair in just a minute. show. So glad to have as my guest, Dr. Alistair McGrath. We're chatting about his book, Born to Wonder, exploring our deepest questions, why we are here and why does it matter? Um, in the last segment, uh, Alistair, we talked, you had talked about the importance of objectivity. And I think uh, some of today's generation seems to focus on subjectivity, like what's truth and meaning for me? Um, so how might this difference impact the search for meaning? Well, I think you're right. I think a lot of people do um, invent their world. In other words, say, I want the world to look like this because that makes me happy. Right. And actually, looking, looking back at my own time as an atheist, I mean, I, I didn't want there to be a God. I wanted to be able to, you know, make my own decisions, make my own calls. And the result was I ended up, in effect, um, fulfilling my desire, simply saying there is no God because I don't want there to be a God. I think you're right. A lot of people um, very often rely excessively on their emotions are blown over the place. They, don't, they can't really achieve stability. I think one of the things we do need to say is that while Christianity engages very well with our emotions, with our feelings, it is saying there is something objective, there's something solid, there's something stable beyond us, which connects up with the way we feel, but actually is not based on what we feel. I think that is very important. It's not simply something that we are um, inventing, but rather it's something that we are um, responsible responding to. Uh, we respond to it, I suppose, in different ways. But nevertheless, we have this very strong sense there is something out there beyond us. Mm-hmm. I dog-eared in your book, Alistair, chapter 10. Put a big dog ear on that page because I loved it. I loved it how it started. What's wrong with us? Why we need the idea of sin? I wanted you to say more about that. 
Well, there is something wrong with us. And in <laughs> effect, if you look around the world, it's very hard not to uh, not to realize that something is going very badly wrong. I mean, people very often talk about progress, but actually when you look at history, it seems to be almost like, you know, a couple of steps forward, then millions of steps backwards. It's, yes. it's very, very depressing. There's something wrong with us. And when I say that to people, they sometimes say, well, you're being very negative. And I say, no, 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 I'm being realistic. We've got to face up to the fact that we aren't as good as we think we are, that things go wrong. And actually, we are broken, we're damaged, we're wounded, we're ill. We need someone to put us back together again. We can't do it by ourselves. And that's, I think, is one of the reasons why the Christian gospel is so exciting, because it does give us this framework for, first of all, seeing that there is something wrong, and then secondly, working out what can be done about it. Mm-hmm. Alistair, would you talk a little bit about the, the, how humanism got started and maybe the historical origins of it? Yes, humanism really began, I suppose, in the, the Renaissance, so say the 14th, 15th centuries. And it was not what we think of humanism as today, a sort of secular atheist movement. Humanism basically was a movement that says we want to achieve fulfillment as human beings. Hmm. And most Renaissance humanists were Christians who would say we achieve our fulfillment as human beings by relating to God. In other words, there's a very strong religious dimension to it. But of course, nowadays you'll find that the word's been hijacked. It now is taken to mean, in effect, uh, a, a secular worldview, which has no place for God. And actually, what we need to do is reclaim this world. Actually, if humanism is about humanity achieving fulfillment, then the Christian take on that is you only become fulfilled by relating to God. And we need to make sure people hear that. It's about, in effect, finding our fulfillment in God. And one of the reasons I think humanism is is struggling a bit at the moment, secular humanism, is that it's fairly obvious that that there is something wrong with humanity. And you very often find humanists struggling when you challenge them and say, look, um, if human beings are as good as you say they are, why are so many things going wrong? And they usually end up saying, well, on the whole we're good, although we do admit that there's some times we go badly wrong. And I think that that's why we really do need to challenge them and say, look, actually, there is something wrong. And until we face up to that, we are never going to really achieve our true potential. Mm -hmm. Is the Western culture obsessed with progress? I think it is. I think that we have this idea, not simply that we are um, that, that, that history is passing, but actually we're moving to a better place. And I think that um, you can understand why people hope that is the case. I mean, I was reading a novel the other day set just after the Second World War, and it was full of optimism. Things are going to get better. And maybe they did, but they didn't stay that way. They began to go wrong again. And I think that we have this, this, this deep hope that things are getting better all the time, and we find it very difficult to cope with the fact that actually this isn't the case. And I think that's why we have this inbuilt hope in, in progress, but actually, if we are, as Christianity says, uh, you know, fallen and sinful, then actually we, we we may occasionally manage to do some things, but actually we're going to be backsliding. There's going to be real problems unless we face up to those. Mm-hmm. When we uh, think about our future and we are looking at uh, the the hope of immortality, uh, talk about technology uh, versus theology. I think there are many people who are frightened of death uh, and feel that it's unfair. And so one of the um, more radical approaches to doing something about this is to try and, in effect, use technology to enhance 
human beings. So it, in effect, will live much longer, maybe live forever. <laughs> and this is seen as being a very good thing. I don't think it's a good thing at all, because <laughs> if you think about it, if, if the world's population is what it is, and we don't die for 500 years, then in effect, we're going to have more wars, famines than we do at the moment, because the, the world isn't big enough for us. So I think it's a very naive philosophy. It does, I think, tell us something very important, that people recognize they're frightened of death. And that's why I think Christianity is really so well to can say, look, we don't need to worry about becoming technologically immortal. We are being promised eternal life, which means we can value our time here, but there is something that better that's going to happen. It gives us a completely dif different perspective on life. And to me, that's a very significant insight, which actually does address this deep human fear of um, mortality. Yeah, I just take a big, deep sigh when you say that. That's a beautiful thought, beautifully expressed. So let's just, as uh, we talk about things that we still have to learn in, in this world, we're going to end up with a lot of questions that are just going to go unresolved, aren't we? We are. I think one of the things we have to learn to realize is that very often simple answers are not good answers. People, people, I think, really want very, very simple answers. That's why I think people were drawn to Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris uh, for a while, although that's all gone now, uh, because they felt that they were offering simple answers, and because they were simple, they were right. And actually, um, life is complex, and very often simple answers are superficial answers. And I think that we just have to learn to live with not being absolutely able to prove the things that we believe. That's not a problem. Um, I often go back to my own time as an atheist. I, uh, I used to think atheists are just right. Everybody else believes this silly stuff. But I think I, at one point I began to realize that I could not prove that atheism was right, that actually it was a belief. I believe there is no God, but I couldn't prove it was right. And that made me, I think, realize two things. Number one, atheism was a faith not fact. And number two, there were other faith systems, and they might be better than atheism. And that's one of the things that led me to Christianity. Because mm -hmm. without a vision, we perish. And if we don't have a vision, it's hard to sustain in this, in this dark world, isn't it? Absolutely. We need something to keep us going. That's why the idea of hope is so important. And the problem is in our secular culture, the word hope very often means optimism. You know, let's just hope things get better. But for Christians, hope is about saying we can move ahead knowing Christ has gone before us, is waiting there for us. So we keep going, not because it's something we have to do, but because we know we're going somewhere where Christ has been before us. And that's a very different idea. Mm -hmm. Alistair, how many years did you maintain your atheism? When did you come to faith in Christ? Well, I was an atheist for, I guess, about three years, a very dogmatic atheist. Then I was very young. I was a teenager. Okay. Um, and in fact, one of the things I, I sometimes do is I, I reflect on my time as an atheist, and I, I kind of think that, you know, that's, that's very much what Richard Dawkins believes today. And I get all nostalgic when I look back at my own period and, and read Richard Dawkins, because he reminds me of what I used to be like. But actually, it's a, atheism is a very difficult worldview to sustain. And I think many atheists secretly know this isn't working. There has to be something better. Mm -hmm. When you have an opportunity to speak to other people that say, I'm an atheist, does that kind of uh, light your scoreboard, scoreboard up in your brain? <laughs> well, basically, um, you know, I love talking to people. 
and arguing with people. Yeah. And very often when <laughs> you I, haven't when argued I, with me today. I, which is uh, great. But I mean, if, if, I, if someone tells me, well, I'm an atheist, I say, well, that's great. I used to be one of you, too. I mean, I, can I ask you a question? You know, the thing that really I find very difficult with atheist was this. You know, why can't I prove I'm right? And I say, oh, oh, I hadn't thought about that. You know, very often you, 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 the conversation raises some very difficult questions for them, and they begin to realize it's not quite as simple as they thought. Yeah. Well, that's uh, – I just really like your – your book. I love your style. And thank you so much for uh, coming on and doing the show today, uh, Alistair. It's really been a delight to meet you. And you will be really good being on your show. Thank you so much. And I want to encourage my listeners, you will love this book. It's called Born to Wonder uh, by Dr. Alistair McGrath, exploring our deepest questions, why we are here and why does it matter? Alistair, thank you so much and have a great rest of the day. I will, Bill. Thank you for having me. Indeed. Special thanks to all my guests. We're going to have a wonderful show coming up tomorrow. Dr. Glenn Pickering is going to be joining me on the program. And then Dr. Peter Kapsner and myself, we're starting our, our another series. This time it's going to be on prayer. So if you like the Salvation Series, we're going to restart another series on prayer. I know I cannot wait because I love prayer and I need more of it. And I want to learn more about what the Bible teaches about it. And it's all, always good to hear other people share their experiences with prayer and what they do, and uh, it's going to be an exciting series. I'm very much looking forward to that. But have a great night. Drive safely if you are uh, battling the elements like we are doing in the upper Midwest tonight, and I'm looking forward to our our time tomorrow. God bless you and keep you, and uh, I'll see you tomorrow.